Welcome to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE Program, Achieving Appropriate and Equitable Treatment Access for Prostate Cancer Care. I'm Jim Kenny, President of JT Kenny LLC, and I'm going to be the moderator for today's program. This Payer Talk CE Program is jointly provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education and Impact Education LLC, and is designated for one contact hour of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Pfizer, Inc. and Myovan Sciences, Inc., and we'd like to thank them for their support. At the conclusion of today's program, you will be able to complete an evaluation, which must be submitted to receive credit. Click Complete Evaluation in the navigation within the activity. Once you complete your evaluation, you must click Claim Credit to download your certificate or for pharmacists, submit your credit to the CPE monitor. Our learning objectives for today's program, review evidence of the disparities in care and access barriers to prostate cancer treatment, with the goal of closing gaps in care and allowing equal and equitable access. Explain the evidence supporting the efficacy and safety profiles of luteinizing hormone-releasing hormone agonists and gonadotropin-releasing hormone receptor antagonists in the treatment of prostate cancer. Assess the importance of timely identification and appropriate management of prostate cancer across diverse patient populations, including aligning treatment selection with patient preferences. And lastly, identify the non-oncologic risks and comorbidities in patients with prostate cancer receiving ADT, including cardiovascular, metabolic, and bone disease. I am joined today by Dr. Clayton Yates and Drs. Chris Fausel and Ryan Bitten. Dr. Yates is a professor of pathology, oncology, urologic oncology, the director for translational health disparities and global health equity research, and program co-leader for cancer genetics and epigenetics at the Sidney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Fausel is the Director of Pharmacy, Precision Genomics at Indiana University Health, and Dr. Bitten brings a payer perspective to our discussion and is currently the Senior Director of Pharmacy Services at Health Plan of Nevada. Welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. Dr. Yates, how do you think about prostate cancer disparities and what do they look like in 2023? When we think about prostate cancer, you know, not only is it, you know, the most commonly diagnosed cancer in men, it's probably one of the cancers that has the most glaring disparities. Black men in the U.S. have among the highest rates of prostate cancer in the world. They tend to be diagnosed at younger and the mortality rate, that means men who actually die from disease, uh, black men are twice as likely to die and, and be diagnosed at advanced stage. And so, you know, this has been extensively researched over the years. While, you know, the reasons are somewhat complex from social aspects to behavioral to biological factors, what is becoming very clear is that these disparities sort of show up in many different areas and create a framework that individuals, you know, accessing, you know, healthcare, individuals participating in health literacy, education, understanding, providing trust and trustworthiness through, you know, the healthcare system and or their doctor all seem to play a major role in, in this disparity. And what have you been looking at in terms of how to address disparities in prostate cancer? You know, specifically as a field, again, it's multifactorial, but in, in our lab, what we've been focusing on is understanding the biology of the disease. And, and over the years of, of my research, what we're finding is that there's distinct biological characteristics that seems to be associated with African-American men, but not only African-American men, but men of African ancestry. We actually do this work 
in the U.S. as well as globally. And we're finding different gene variants, different gene expression. And the reason this is important, because in our era of precision medicine or accessing the latest and most advanced types of therapies, we want to ensure that minority patients, particularly those who are suffering the most, get access to those in appropriate matter that fits the biology associated with their cancer. What are the steps we need to take in terms of making a difference in addressing these disparities? Well, I think it's sort of twofold. We have the basic systematic approach um, where, you know, I mentioned earlier about providing trust, right? Health and literacy, education, being out in the community as providers, as people who care for large populations within our hospital systems, having our patients become more literate about the disease, understanding that there is a disparity. And not only from our patient perspective, but also provider perspective. It's really important that providers, particularly your primary care provider, understands these care, these statistics that we mentioned earlier, that black men are twice as likely diagnosed, that even at diagnosed early, that that patient who presents in the clinic possibly as non-aggressive disease has a higher chance of, of progressing to a more advanced stage than other races. And so these sort of factors play a major role in how we should address this from a systemic perspective. From a research perspective, we need better tools, right? So in my opinion, as far as disparities, I started this work some 15 years ago, and the field is just advancing to the point now where we st we're starting to understand what these differences are. We're starting to understand that populations respond different to different modalities. And I think it's our goal going forward to make sure that those patients who come into the clinic are presented with the appropriate options that match the biology of their tumor so that they can have the best chance of successful outcome. And so these are really important factors that have to be considered moving forward to address disparities and close this gap. Great point. Yeah, yeah this is Stutter Redden. I just agree with Dr. Yates. Great comments. And I think from a health plan perspective and health systems, I think a good step to close disparities and address them is to just identify them. And so I think pulling data as a health plan, we've got lots of data on membership, the claims that come through, the claims that don't come through. And so I think having dedicated resources within the company being used to identify and you know look at the rates of appropriate care in our population is probably a first step from a health plan perspective. Thank you. Dr. Fazel, we heard a number of disparities exist in research and diagnosis of prostate cancer. What are you seeing in the receipt and use of appropriate treatment? So first off, I want to say I agree with everything that Dr. Yates pointed out. He brought up a lot of really, really important points. One of the things that we're trying to do here at Indiana University, you know, we're in a rural state. And when we've gone back and looked at where the patients are coming to us that are getting sequenced for prostate cancer and other cancers as well, they're largely in the cities in the state or the smaller cities in the state. Not as many patients in rural areas have access to the care that you may have if you live in a suburb of Indianapolis. So we put together a SPORE grant that's gonna try and remedy some of this and make precision medicine available to more patients across the state. But one of the things I think it's really important to note now is we are in a really outstanding phase of drug development for prostate cancer. When I started out as a pharmacist, you basically had androgen deprivation therapy. You had to know that you would give somebody an LHRH agonist, and you had to remember to put an anti-androgen in combination for the first few you know, days to weeks of therapy to prevent a testosterone surge. And then when patients progressed on to uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer, you had a leukemia drug 
mitoxantrone plus prednisone, which barely worked. I mean, we've come so far now in terms of drug development, we have a number of different anti-androgen therapies that can be layered on top of each other to optimize response. We have immunotherapy that has uh, taken a drug called Cipolucil T that's been used in a niche area. These things were developed in the 2010s. We've demonstrated that a class of chemotherapy drugs, taxanes, are extremely important when added on in patients that have castrate-resistant prostate cancer. You can give docetaxel in combination with antiandrogen therapy. You have a second drug, cabazitaxel, that could be used in patients that have progressed after docetaxel. You have the now basically off-the-shelf PSMA lutetium drug Pluvicto that can be used in patients that have basically progressed on almost everything that's available. And that doesn't even take into consideration uh, the precision medicine drugs like PARP inhibitors. If you have a patient that has a number of different HRR gene mutations, if the patient has genomic sequencing, and, and that's just the beginning. I really think, you know, as we start to see precision medicine be integrated earlier in patients with prostate cancer, you know, when you discover P10, you may be able to bring a patient to an AKT inhibitor trial. So there's just so many different options that physicians can think through in sequence to optimize patients' journey when they're being treated with prostate cancer these days. And it's really, and I think we're just getting started. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful thing. I just want to add one, one maybe it's one small point. You know, Dr. Fossil talked about the supplicil T or the ProVeg therapy. You know, Oliver Sorter did a, a trial before he left Tulane University. He's now at Mayo Clinic, where they actually matched those patients with African-American patients who had this immune inflammatory signature, these differential gene expression, with the supplicil T, which is a more of immunotype therapy. And guess what? African-Americans responded two times better than the standard of care therapy, and they had twice as likely survival rates. Then, So again, you know, these options that we have available is really, really key that it's an explosion of the data, but also matching that with the biology of these individuals are is extremely important and it's precision more in, in our fight against tackling disparities. That's great feedback. Very exciting area. Certainly when you have lots of choices in cancer, it's, uh, you know, a bit unusual, but certainly very positive from the patient perspective. Uh, Dr. Bitt, now there are options from a payer perspective to address some of these disparities, either in the formula review process or health plan management process for prostate cancer treatments? Yeah, I think the um, health plan management perspective as a, as a health plan, I think identifying you know, disparities, making sure that people are getting the right types of care can be something we can see. If we're seeing deficiencies in, in what the claims that we're receiving, we say that so-and-so should be involved in prostate care. Is it, does this look appropriate? We can look at things like that. From a formula review perspective, I think there's um, all diseases are handled kind of the same general process from a pharmacy and therapeutics committee. I'm looking at appropriate coverage and things based on the safety and the clinical efficacy of, of products. And then, of course, I'm layering on some financial considerations as well. So I think that's in that process, identifying disparities and trying to addressing them is tough in the formulary management purview. But I think the data that is received of the health plan for all claims from all providers for all our members and patients can probably be helpful in addressing those disparities. Yeah, and certainly for the Medicare population where oncology is a protected class, that opens up coverage pretty broadly 
with a requirement to cover all or substantially all products within the category. And I think that spills over to commercial as well, although the commercial plans are not required to cover everything. Oncology historically has been a little bit of a more open category, some degree of utilization managed, but in general, not as tightly managed as some of the other categories of non-oncology indications. Dr. Falzo, what are some of the safety considerations Dr. Bitten and other payers will need to consider around prostate cancer treatment options? Well, you know, we were just talking a moment ago about how we have all these wonderful new options that physicians can pick from to treat prostate cancer. Unfortunately, none of them are a free lunch. So, I mean, if you go back to the androgen deprivation therapies, of course, we know about the classic toxicities of these drugs, the fatigue, the exercise intolerance, the hot flashes that patients get, uh, the loss of libido. Those are things that prostate cancer patients, and you know, there are some patients that are diagnosed in their 40s and 50s. So these are really, really critical things that impact quality of life greatly in this patient group. But as you start to look at older patients and as they start to have multiple medical comorbidities, cardiovascular disease ends up becoming a big, big deal. And a number of these newer agents do have some cardiovascular toxicity. So some of the newer androgen deprivation therapies have risks associated with cardiac disease, ischemic heart disease. So one needs to be careful about which one of these androgen deprivation therapies they're gonna be selecting. The PARP inhibitors. The PARP inhibitors can cause significant myelosuppression, not to the extent that you would typically see with chemotherapy like docetaxel or cabazitaxel, but it's real and it needs to be monitored for, not to mention the GI toxicity that is, is associated with those drugs. Of course, I mentioned the chemotherapy with docetaxel and cabazitaxel. The chemotherapy-associated side effects with hair loss, fortunately, these two drugs aren't horrific in terms of the nausea and vomiting, but it still can happen from, with patients from time to time. There's infusion-related reactions that patients can have with these two drugs, and the myelosuppression with both of these is formidable, especially with cabazitaxel. If they've had docetaxel in the past, they tend to have somewhat of a cumulative effect of the myelosuppression associated with these. And the same could be said with the lutetium product, Pluvicto, that, that causes a fair amount of myelosuppression as well. And again, these are also patients that have probably gotten a taxane in the past. So one of the things that physicians are going to have to think through as they layer these therapies one right after the other is, okay, well, the patient has had drugs X, Y, and Z. What impact is that going to have on the next line of therapy that I'm going to be providing to these patients? Dr. Yates, any thoughts on the safety from your perspective? No, I think that's, you know, critical, right? As we're advancing drugs, I always like to talk about cancer is very difficult, right? So, it, you know, if it were very easy, you know, the, then we wouldn't possibly have these heart attacks. And so, again, as we're advancing and we're starting to understand what these drugs do, understanding and that our patients are living longer, Understanding the toxicity or the cumulative effect, as Dr. Fausto said, I think is really important to consider as we're trying to manage the disease in the clinic. I will we'll say that, you know, there are some newest therapies at, at Johns Hopkins. We're in our phase two, you know, early phase two trials, but instead of using androgen deprivation, we're actually giving superlogical physical levels of, of testosterone called BAT therapy. And these BAT therapies are addressing some of these, you know, comorbidities, these cardiotoxicities that we see with androgen deprivation therapies, and it's doing them wonders. And so, uh, you know, Sam Deniti and, and Laura Sinia uh, is, is running these clinical trials. But again, we're thinking about that from a clinical and a research perspective, and we're trying to address that on a daily basis. 
and you have outlined good reasons why we don't typically manage these as aggressively because you've got to deal with managing all the safety and tolerability side effects of these products and ideally match them with the patients. Yeah. And to your point, Dr. Fausel, on previous treatments that may lead to more rapid response in terms of safety concerns, being able to identify that as something that we really need to rely on the experts to do that for us. Dr. Yates, what else are you considering when you're thinking about treatment of a patient with prostate cancer? You know, I'll say it's not even what we're thinking about. It's probably because in prostate cancer, it's the shared decision-making, right? And so you have to think about what the patient's thinking about. And so people come in, they're thinking about these toxicities. Guys know it now. A men, you know, as far as groups, they understand, you know, their discussions about, you know, if you you lower the testosterone through biochemical, you know, castration, such as our ADT drugs, you know, about this cardiotoxicity, about the quality of life. And so as we're, again, advancing with these molecular targets, and it's really great, it's exciting. You know, well, at least what I think about on, on a daily basis is how do we do that and have that same approach, but improve the quality of life of that individual at the same time. And I think going forward, and again, as we're advancing in, again, this age of molecular medicine, where we're, again, we're utilizing targets, we're understanding the biology, we're rapidly discovering drugs. The toxicity of these drugs is really important, I think, is what has to be considered as we're moving forward, especially with our aging population. Great. Thank you. Dr. Bitten, any thoughts on the adherence component in this category? Yeah, I think there's... Um... Great considerations based on what was just described. And I think that the commentary on it, it's complex. You got to match the right drug with the right patient and consider all the efficacy and, and safety. And I think that that can lead to some, if you don't match real well, that can lead to worse non adherence. I think non adherence in general, there's not a ton of data out there, but some sources show that 25 to 51% people in prostate care receiving oral therapies have some. That, that's not adherence, you know, and we can see that in populations that are in the older populations and African-American populations. And there's a lot that could lead to that. And I think some of the uh, the barriers could include some of the suboptimal education, patients not knowing kind of what they're getting, what to expect, as well as kind of the cognitive decline that we see in advanced age um, associated with uh, prostate cancer. And then just, I mean, the comorbid health conditions and uh, mental conditions that are disorders that people will be experiencing as they're going through prostate care. So yes, I think the not adherence is always a consideration with, with any drug, but I think in this category and some of the disparities, um, something to consider. Great, thank you. All right, now we're gonna present a couple of case studies. Our first case is cardiovascular disease risk in a 74-year-old man with prostate cancer. The first case here, he's a 74-year-old black man with a three-year history of prostate cancer. He underwent treatment for local disease with a radical prostatectomy and external beam radiation therapy. He has coronary disease, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. ADT was started two months ago following biochemical recurrence. Dr. Yates, how does his history of CVD inform approaches to managing prostate cancer? Well, again, it's a situation where, you know, in the, in particularly in that individual, you're going to have to manage this cardiovascular toxicity effect of ADT, right? And so, again, the oncologist is going to be worried about the length of time. So we have cycling of our androgen deprivation therapy drugs. You have maintenance of long-term. We have alternative use of front, second line versus, you know, sort of the older ones that may not cause, you know, these androgen deprivation therapies. If, I mean, may not have as many cardiotoxicities as, you know, some of these newer front, second and frontline therapies. And so, again, it's, it's a real conversation that has to be considered moving forward to manage that, manage that person. 
patient. Dr. Basel, are there some drug specific considerations to be taken into account with a patient with these specific comorbidities? Yes. So, uh, you know, as a card carrying pharmacist, I always have drug drug interactions that kind of the front of my mind. And so, and there's a whole bunch of them with the androgen deprivation drugs. So, abiraterone, enzalutamide, darolutamide, relugalix, they're all metabolized by the cytochrome P450 isoenzyme cascade. And so they all have a litany of drug drug interactions that one has to stay on top of. And when you layer on the fact that these patients, have multiple medical comorbidities, as is the case here for this particular case that we're describing, we need to be aware of that and we need to be thinking about, okay, well, can this patient actually get a calcium channel blocker and can this patient actually get erythromycin and all these other and anti azole antifungals, all these other drugs that are given very routinely to this patient group have significant impacts on the anti-cancer therapies that we're providing to patients. So. I really think it's up to us as pharmacists to help out our physician colleagues and, and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I took, a, I took a good look at this patient's treatment medication profile, and I think maybe we may need to make a few alterations to optimize and, and keep everything on track with respect to the anti-cancer therapy. Now, so that's part of it. The other part of it is we have to make sure that the patients are taking their medications properly. So that involves some upfront education, that involves some ongoing monitoring for adherence, and that may, especially with some of these oral specialty drugs, that's going to involve making sure that patients can actually get access to these drugs because of either insurance or lack of insurance or or potentially the copay that patients may have to absorb with paying out of pocket so making sure that we provide all of those services in a kind of in a 360 degree way can make sure that we give our patients the best chance to get the best that they possibly can out of their therapy great feedback thank you all right, our second case is a 69-year-old male, originally diagnosed with localized but very high-risk prostate cancer. He underwent radiation and planned for three years of luprolide. He was responding well, but unfortunately, 24 months later, while still on the luprolide, his PSA has started to rise to 17. His oncologist undertook a metastatic workup and found multiple retroperitoneal nodes and one lesion on bone scan. He was diagnosed with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, he underwent genomic testing and showed no actionable genetic alterations. What factors influence treatment choice in advanced prostate cancer here, Dr. Fausel? Well, first off, you know, you're always disappointed to hear that your patient, when they get the results of genomic sequencing, that it's negative. We would hope that a patient would at least find perhaps a BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation or another HRR gene mutation for which PARP inhibitor therapy would be another line of therapy that the physicians could consider slotting in there when they think it's appropriate. But that doesn't mean that the patient won't have negative findings forever because the genome of the tumor is not static. It evolves over time. So you could always do this testing again a year or two years later and see if an actual gene mutation shows up that can inform a physician's decision-making as to whether or not they have another line of therapy that they can pick from. And then getting back to what we had talked to, you know, Dr. Yates had a, a very, very important point, I think, in terms of like lining up these therapies for individual patients, it's a two-way discussion. You know, patients have different values depending on where they are in their life, and you have to sit through and hash that out with them and come to an agreement as to what makes sense. You know, an individual patient may not want to take docetaxel or cabazitaxel. They may want to do whatever they can to avoid chemotherapy. So 
in addition to the medical comorbidity issues that push you in one direction versus another to avoid, as we had described several times in this discussion, avoiding excessive cardiovascular risk with certain medications, there's also going to be patient preference things that physicians are going to work through with their patients. Great, thank you. Dr. Yates, how do health disparities impact the management of patients with advanced prostate cancer? Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, the real problem with this is that we just, we don't have enough data. <laughs> we know African-Americans have more aggressive disease, but we don't have, you know, I think the large studies that show, you know, how a man with advanced disease, particularly, we know that, you know, the increased diagnosis and we know the African-American man progressed much faster through, you know, the the stage of disease, but a person with the exact advanced disease, how do they respond to our current standard of care? Now, I will tell you, you know, really great data out of uh, North Carolina through Dan George um, clinical trial cohort showed African-American men respond much better to docetaxel in the castration resistant, metastatic castration resistant setting. But again, these are anecdotal phase two trials that have not provided to phase three and, you know, been the standard of care based on an African-American man, if you will. And so therefore, you know, we still need further studies to be able to define what is optimally best based on, again, the precision medicine of genomic ancestry of these individuals with late stage disease. Thank you. Dr. Bitten, what are some of the challenges and unmet needs in the treatment of advanced prostate cancer? Yeah, thanks, Jim. I think there's a uh, there's a lot to consider here. I think unmet needs is always a. I think Dr. Yates could talk about, and as he has, the needs of you know the struggles that he has, right? And we don't have cures. We got lots of development. I think that was uh, that was pointed out. So I think there's resistance to current therapies. I mean, some therapies stop working, don't work to, be to begin with. People cycling through different mechanisms of action from a drug perspective. I think uh, there's opportunities for personalized medicine, biomarker guided treatment, as was kind of referenced. I think all the development and early detection of prostate cancer in general, as well as in identifying metastases. Uh, there's also novel ways to look at this from a, from a guideline perspective. And I think about the patient that at the core of all of this, then the support that they receive from a quality of life psychological perspective, because managing cancer in general is tough and coordinating all of that, the care needed, the uh, the visits, uh, Dr. Fausto brought up just getting the therapies and navigating through health plans and, and the benefits there. So I think addressing all of those challenges and opportunities and those unmet needs, um, it's just require a lot of ongoing research and collaboration between all of us on the phone and uh, scientists and kind of considering that investment in prostate cancer research and development. Thank you. I'd like to ask each of you a pointed question. I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Fausel, regarding, you know, possibly how do we identify these patients with health disparities. You talked about the program you have where you're sort of outreaching uh, into the community to try to identify patients. Can you describe a little bit about, you know, how you're able to, if you are, how you're able to identify these patients that may have some health disparity issues? So my approach to this is every patient is likely to have some degree of a health disparity until proven otherwise. And so, again, that could be because of racial issues, that could be because of financial issues, that could be because of location and how far away you are from a healthcare facility. So really, it's kind of on us to ensure that a patient doesn't have a health disparity and just work through whatever health disparities that they do have. I, I mean, really, at the end of the day, this is all our responsibility to meet the patient where they're at and to make sure that the therapies that we're providing, we can support effectively 
regardless of the type of setting that the patient happens to be in and regardless of the type of medical comorbidities that the patient tends to have and regardless of the patient's ability to pay. We have to coalesce around all these things and make good decisions that help our patients get the most they possibly can. You know, we spent a fair amount of time talking about how all these new therapies are impacting prostate cancer patients in a very positive way in terms of lengthening survival and increasing remission duration. And there's other platforms that we haven't even talked about yet that are headed on the way by specific antibodies antibody drug conjugates, these drugs are likely to be approved in the next couple of years for patients with prostate cancer, which again is only going to increase how patients can benefit. So let's make sure we de- take a deep dive right up front, address what disparities a patient may have, and provide therapy that works for them and mitigates any disparities that they may have. Thank you very much. Dr. Bitten, you mentioned you have the capability of pulling data and looking at claims and everything, but I suspect it's not uh, something that you can simply run a report off your claim system and figure out which patients have uh, health disparities or not. I mean, what, what are you doing as a health plan to try to address that specific issue? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. I think there's a We've got a first step. We've got a group of people who are kind of focused on how do we figure out the disparities in our community. So, so looking at the community as at large, and then saying, okay, our membership, how does that line up with the self-esteem in the community? If you look at zip codes and areas where their um, where members are living and the care they're receiving, or the care that they're they're not receiving. So, yes. It's not as easy as looking at claims. You got to put in claims with the kind of the social determinants of health, and what we know from a population perspective, uh, from the data that we receive on enrollment forms from employers and from from the state for Medicaid. So we know a lot about the patients, but you got to go to a bunch of different systems. So it gets kind of kind of complex to kind of figure that out. And so I think we had, we're in the process of identifying those people who may not be getting bringing up less desirable outcomes and saying, how do we get them better care? Or how do we get them enrolled in the programs that they're not being enrolled in either by themselves or by the providers? And so I think it's a, it is a work in progress. So I don't have any great outcomes to share, but it's definitely something we're focusing on. And to you, Dr. Yates, is there anything Johns Hopkins is doing in terms of outreach to providers in the community or health plans that you interact with trying to do a better job at identifying uh, patients with health disparities and improving access for care for these patients? No, absolutely. So, you know, since I arrived at Johns Hopkins, but, you know, I was at Tuskegee for several years prior to arriving at Hopkins, what I learned very, very, very clearly from being at Tuskegee, which was the National Center for Bioethics, is that the community has to trust you. So you have to be, the, the community has to trust, but in order for an institution, for a community to trust you, you have to be trustworthy. Okay. And so at Hopkins, since I've been there, you know, our goal is to bring the hospital or bring the community, bring that to the community, particularly in the African-American population, again, because of this trust. I think we saw this very vividly when the rollout of the COVID vaccines about trust in our community, you know, and in our healthcare and our healthcare providers. And so understanding what the community needs, listening to them, bringing these solutions that I'll tell you, if you go to the doctor, it's very hard to go through this, <laughs> this gambit of, you know, what we talked about today in the, in the context of, of an office appointment, but allowing that, fostering that education in the community through patient navigation, through community health educators, computer navigators, is really key to improving the overall health 
I mean, I could just say this, we talked about clinical trials and, you know, it's a big push for minority inclusion. The data is very clear. When minorities are engaged through community patient navigated, community health educators, and whether that's African-American or Latino populations, they actually over-enroll, right? So it's actually over-enrolled in clinical trials. And so, you know, that engagement though, you know, because of that lack of trust is clearly there. And we're, if we're going to improve the overall health and have people take advantage of all this really outstanding, you know, advances we have in medicine, we have to bring that to them because of that historic background of the infringement of the healthcare system on marginalized populations and communities. Very interesting. Thank you for that. Now a targeted question. I'll start with you, Dr. Fossil. What are your thoughts on the newly approved talazoparib and zalutamide combination and how it might help improve outcomes? So I think, and this is this is a more general statement, not just on the TALA-ENZA approval. I think the road to cure and in much longer remission durations is with combination therapy. It's been very, very few instances in cancer, in the history of the treatment of cancer, that a single agent, whether it's a single agent PARP inhibitor versus something else, is going to end up being curative. Eventually, the tumor is going to figure it out. So I, th I think that's a great start in terms of interlocking therapies that have non-overlapping toxicities to try and get a bigger bang from your buck in terms of remission duration. So I, I think it's outstanding. Dr. Yates, anything to add on that combination? I agree. You know, prostate cancer, unlike other cancers, has been very hesitant for combination therapies. In fact, you know, we've been really mainly focused on improving androgen deprivation. You know, th these HRD therapies that, you know, particularly from the PARP inhibitor perspective, I think are super exciting. And that also correlates with the disparities population. If you look at work from ourselves and others who have actually, you know, performed sequencing in this population, there's a clear HRD higher and highest response signature in African Americans and people of African ancestry in general across the globe. So again, this is another a step advance for the disparate populations. However, although it's not being targeted as such, matching the biology of these individuals from that bench translational perspective with our current standard of care, I think is going to be critical as we move forward. But just in general, you know, combination therapies, more advanced therapies, thinking beyond androgen receptor, I'm super excited about for prostate cancer patients. And lastly, Dr. Benton, combination therapy means combination of cost, right? Two medications rather than one. I mean, what challenge does that present, if any, from a formulary perspective for a payer like yourself? Yeah, I think as we look at innovation, a lot of times we can see two targeted therapies that work in combination better. And I think that you get better outcomes. So I think that to your point earlier, Jim, there's not a lot of sequencing and management, overt formulary management perspective in the Medicare space specifically. And so, um, but I think that that does go downstream to other lines of business where we're not doing a lot of step therapy in the sense that um, lots of preventing access to therapies for providers in the oncology space. So I think that um, combination therapy, we think about this in, in other cancers as well. We think about throwing, um, you know, immuno-oncology, immunotherapy, on top of other targeted therapies. Uh, I think, yeah, there's additional costs, but we have good outcomes. And as long as, as, long as there's good data to support, support that I think the managed care community is supportive of innovation, even at the higher cost, because if we can treat and get better outcomes, then that's what we're in business for. Great, thank you all for helping us work through those case studies as well. All right, at this time, we would like to address some of the audience questions uh, that have come in. The first one, how about you, Dr. Yates? Given the health disparities discussed, are any one of the treatment options generally preferred over another? 
in black men, for example, surgery, radiation therapy, hormone therapy, or targeted therapies? You know, um, again, you know, in prostate cancer, we have shared decision making, right? Um, and even though this is anecdotal, um, we haven't seen, you know, one preferred, you know, method of um, approach that a man chooses versus another. It's a really a, a personal decision between that individual. I think what um, has to happen, though, is that, you know, when they, you know, meet with their physician, that they're presented with all the options. And a lot of times what we see is that patients, particularly of African ancestry and African-Americans from marginalized community are not presented with all of the options available because of inherent bias. And so, again, um, but, you know, once that is being presented, we have not, or at least in, in the literature, there's not a clear choice of therapy for one for the other. Great. Thank you very much. Dr. Fausel, here's one for you. What are you looking most forward to around treatment options for patients with prostate cancer? Well, I think it's a couple of things. Uh, number one, I think there are new classes of agents that have not yet been uh, FDA approved in the treatment of prostate cancer that are going to make a big difference. So when you look at, for example, bispecific antibodies, if you look at monoclonal antibody drug conjugates, potentially even uh, cell-based therapies, maybe not CAR T-cell therapy because it's a little bit too toxic for prostate cancer patients. But I, I really think there's several different new classes of agents that are going to become available for the treatment of prostate cancer, which are going to make a big deal in terms of uh, improving patients' remission duration and, and overall survival. And also, I think uh, we we talked about this a little bit during the presentation. We talked about kind of the need for combination therapy. So now that we've had a couple of different PARP inhibitors in combination with uh, androgen deprivation therapy drugs, those are really going to unlock, I think, another level of success in terms of patients getting longer remission durations. Thank you very much. Uh, for you, Dr. Yates, have the orally administered drugs changed patient or provider preferences in ADT? And any concerns in using oral treatments? You know, you know. Again, um, one oral is always preferred because of adherence, right? You know, um, you know, the typical standard of care of fusion chemotherapy um, is really taxing not only on the patient but the, the the caregiver and family as well. So, just from a compliance oral availability, and just from a farmer's perspective, as most people would would agree, is the is 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 preferred and 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 what the drug industry is striving for. Uh, you know, I still think it's very early for us to, you know, anecdotally say, you know, there's a preferred, um, you know, particularly choice of men because of this, this shared decision-making criteria that is, um, you know, inherent in, in, in the treatment of prostate cancer patients. However, we just know from general, overall, you know, from not particularly in prostate cancer, just overall, you know, um, um, therapeutics that oral availability definitely is um, a more a path, a treatment option that's chosen better or more frequently for, um, uh, for patients. Thank you very much. Dr. Fausel, can you comment on the risk of osteoporosis associated with ADT and how you manage it in your patients? Sure. Well, uh, obviously, you always want to optimize any sort of non-pharmacologic means that you can in terms of uh, trying to prevent osteoporosis. So obviously, you'd want to have patients take a, a fair amount of calcium, vitamin D, 
But if if you get into the range where they've just had such profound bone loss, you're going to have to use agents such as the bisphosphonates. Uh, every six months, zolotronic acid would be a reasonable thing to do. Or you can go to, uh, along the same lines uh, every six months with denosumab. So a couple different classes which have shown benefit in patients with uh, pronounced bone loss could be considered reasonable toxicity with both of those agents, although you do have to be careful with, for example, hypocalcemia with denosumab. You do have to be careful in patients with renal insufficiency with zolandronic acid. Thank you. Dr. Yates, are there different mental health needs in prostate cancer based on race or other social determinants of health? You know, that's a great question. We haven't seen any of that association either. Um, you know, again, um, we, we it's mainly focused on um, for, for particularly disparate population is presenting them with all the options at the time of diagnosis and being able to help triage them throughout the, their care that, that reaches the optimal outcomes. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Fausel, given the metabolic effects of ADT, is there special monitoring guidance for these treatments? Yes. So patients need to be followed closely while they're on androgen deprivation therapy. They need to have chemistries done on a routine basis. There are a small number of patients that could have increases in liver function tests. Uh, so on an ongoing basis, and these patients are going to be seen fairly routinely, you know, every three months, uh, in some cases, every six months. Uh, so they're going to, they're going to have chemistries drawn to, to look for things like this. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Yates, are you seeing differences in overall survival based on which treatment is selected first or based uh, on race or geographic location? Well, we are. Um, so again, this is clinical trial data, but um, you know, many have documented based on the biology of, of men of African ancestry, there's a clear inherent inflammatory immune response. There's um, and higher androgen, uh, androgen receptor. So we've seen outcome data in phase two trials from Duke that I recommend spawn better to abiraterone compared to um, some other therapies. And then we also see uh, provandial supercil T response, which is a, another immune type therapy. African-American men do twice as likely respond and have twice as like uh, increased uh, outcome survival outcomes compared to other races when matched with the biology. So, you know, again, um, this explosion of um, biology is now fueling clinical trials. They're not any clinically approved, but those are phase two data, which are very, very encouraging. Thank you for that. Dr. Bitten, uh, are there specific steps payers can take in terms of making a difference and addressing the disparities we've discussed in this program today? Yeah, I think there are specific things that can be done. Um, like I've, yeah, I think that the first step is, you know, identifying them in specific populations, right? If you, so as, as payers, we have access to, to claims, we have access to, uh, we know what's happening in our market with our membership, and we can use that data to, to identify and say, I have targeted interventions to help help um, address these disparities and these, um, and these, these hiccups in care. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Fausel, what about changes in prostate-specific antigen screening? Is that impacting uh, prostate cancer care? It does, and I, th I think there's more of an awareness that, uh, that that needs to be done among older men. 
But I, I think what probably is more important right now is we have to reestablish with all of our patients post-COVID uh, to get back out to see their healthcare providers. You know, one of the things that we we experienced, unfortunately, in the cancer field during COVID is that many patients just put off these routine screenings for cancer that they normally would have had done, and then they ended up getting diagnosed with more advanced disease. So I really think there's a reset that's in order uh, for all of our patients to do screening for all types of cancer on a routine basis, including prostate cancer. Very good. Dr. Bitten, another question for you. Do you think achieving cancer health equity must include access to clinical trial opportunities? And how can payers support clinical trial enrollment? Uh, thank you. That's a really good question. I think um, I think the answer is yes, that um, having access to clinical trials is, is, is important. And I think for the most part, um, I think payer support of offering you know, care to get people before and after after coming out of trials. Um, there's there's some coordination there. I think that the role, I think the role um, plans in enrolling people in clinical trials. I think that's a that I think that's tough. I think a lot of that probably re relies on uh, providers and in the healthcare de delivery aspect. But um, I think that access to that is is important, and I think payers will probably take more of a role. Thank you. Uh, we'll start with you, uh, Dr. Yates. What do patients tell you is the most challenging about their prostate cancer care? Well, I mean, other than the, um, you know, the lack of testosterone, um, the cardiometabolic um, side effects that normally have to be managed, in addition to that, um, is the um, overall quality of health that uh, a man has to deal with when going through the disease. Um, however, you know, that's offset by, you know, the, you know, some, you know, uh, routine follow-ups. I think Dr. Fossil talked about that, you know, much earlier. However, you know, the androgen deprivation as far as, you know, what we have to do to decrease testosterone or decrease the level of androgens in a man is typically the most, um, one of the major um, complaints that the men have going through um, the least frontline disease therapy for their disease. Um, also ask the same question to you, Dr. Fausel. What do patients tell you is most challenging about their prostate cancer care? Well, certainly what Dr. Yates just highlighted that uh, the side effects from androgen deprivation therapy are uh, debilitating in many instances. I live in a rural state, Indiana, and we have many folks that have worked very, very hard their entire lives on farms or, or and uh, they you know, they 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 go on androgen deprivation therapy and they don't have the the stamina, let alone the other things like uh, dealing with hot flashes to go out and do their normal routine in life. And so that that's debilitating. But, you know, another thing that is important to mention is uh, when patients start to have progressive disease and their disease has spread to bone, patients that have metastatic bone disease with prostate cancer could have a very significant diminution in quality of life because of the pain associated with that and because of the debilitation and the lack of being able to do routine routine things. So I think in the early stage of disease, dealing with the side effects of androgen deprivation therapy, in the later stages of disease, the bone disease is pretty, pretty rough for patients to deal with. 
Thank you, Dr. Bitten. How about you? What, what, from a payer perspective, do your patients indicate is most challenging about their prostate cancer care? That's a that's a good question, Jim. I think um, I'm not sure from a payer perspective that we get a lot of the a lot of the detail um, coming back to us on the impact of you know the more disruptive parts of their care. I think for uh, one of the things that we we talk about a lot internally, and I think prostate cancer is one of one of the bigger topics in oncology, probably in general, is just the transitions of care um, between making sure that you you've got adequate access to the right provider, and then also access to the right medications and, and, and testing and, and the care pieces, which I think that that's where we have the role of the plan to help transition to kind of case manage, care manage um, people who are, who are involved in high cost and somewhat involved care. Thank you, Dr. Fausel. Here's a question for you. How do we get men to seek out medical care and get their regular physical examinations? Any thoughts? It's hard. I mean, I, I'm guilty of this myself, uh, not being timely and going to my, my medical appointments for personal issues. So it's, it's a hard thing to do. I, I think uh, through constant uh, incentivization, I think may, may help by, by not mandating to patients to say, you have to do this, you have to do that. I mean, trying to, to get patients on a partnership journey, as opposed to making them feel threatened by having to go to the physician would, would help us out, uh, for a good number of patients. Dr. Bitten, are there any limitations on patients getting in to get various screenings and services from the payer perspective, or are those things that are widely available? Uh, those things are widely available. I think if there's a lot of uh, a lot of focus from a plan perspective is on that preventive medication, uh, preventive medicine. Um, we want to prevent things, and so we we have lots of zero or copays, um, access to wellness visits. Uh, there are lots of um, incentives built into lots of provider contracts as well. So I think that we try to pave. We don't want to have any barriers to access to uh, getting preventive care and diagnosing these things earlier. Dr. Yates, any advice on how to get men to seek out medical care or at least get regular physical examinations? No, it is definitely a challenge. Um, you know, things that we've done is 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 go out into the community and try to educate men as to why. I do a talk called Man Up for Prostate Cancer. Um, and, you know, just having men reflect that their health actually impacts. So, you know, as men, sometimes... Um, you know, the, the health is 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 not as important as attaining, um, you know, some of the immediate needs of your family. But, you know, just refocusing that effort by saying that if you're not around to be able to provide the provide for your family is just as important. So, you know, so a, re, a repositioning of, of, of an approach for men has been beneficial in getting men to the doctor and focusing on their health. And that you know it's not a scary thing, and and also destigmatizing. Again, there's a marginalized or you know not as, as great relationship between patient and or healthcare system, particularly for the black community, and sort of breaking those down, having men understand the appropriate questions to ask, so that they don't go into the provider, that they ask questions and don't feel as if they're inferior to a person. That that's a conversation. That they can have and be and be armed with the appropriate questions is, has been really beneficial in getting me into the doctor. Thank you very much. Uh, last question we have at the moment, um, Dr. Fazl, I'll direct this to you. 
How do you think the enhancing oncology model will impact prostate cancer care with the additional supports to improve access, treatment, and outcomes for Medicare beneficiaries? So I think it has a lot of promise. Uh, one limitation that we're going to have to see how it plays out, because this is just getting up and running, is to see how many practices and how many payers actually sign up to participate. As of right now, there's only three payers, Blue Cross in South Carolina and Tennessee and CVS Health that have signed up at, from a payer standpoint. And so far, there's only 44 practices across the country that have agreed to, to participate. Now, we're still early in the game. Uh, the oncology care model, which preceded the enhancing oncology model, uh, had pretty robust participation in its five-year duration. So I expect that that will get better, but we need to have a number of sites participate. And now that they've actually taken some of the focus off of trying to reduce cost and, and kind of pivoted to saying, okay, well, how do we reduce disparities in in these different practices? I, I think we should actually start to gain a little bit more traction. Thank you. Dr. Bitten, is your company uh, engaging in this enhancing oncology model? Uh, no, we we are not. My my regional health plan is not involved in that. What about the oncology care model? Did you participate in that either? Um, no, we did We did not. I'm, I'm part of a national uh, group as well, uh, national plan. I think there was, some, there was some involvement nationally in those, but I don't have uh, I don't have any details. And Dr. Yates, do you interact with these programs for the Medicare population at all in your practice? The oncology you know, model or the enhancing oncology model? Yeah, unfortunately we don't, but I actually think it's it's gonna be beneficial. Um, you know, education to the provider as well as the patient is important. So with an emphasis on reducing disparity, um, sort of forces physicians to understand the disparity, understand or at least appreciate some of, of the uh, of the barriers that you know, patients have with access and care. And so, again, I think that approach has promise. Um, again, we're too early. We don't interact with that too much at uh, that patient population at Hopkins. But, um, you know, I think we're very early in in, in the data, but the approach is, um, in, 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 I think, is uh, one that's going to hopefully lead to uh, improve outcomes for marginalized populations, patients. Thank you very much. Well, that was the last of the questions we had that came in for today's program. So I would now like to conclude the webcast. I want to thank Dr. Yates, Dr. Fausel, and Dr. Bitten for their excellent contributions and insightful commentary. And once again, I would like to thank Pfizer, Inc. and Myavent Sciences, Inc. for their support of this educational activity. To claim credit for this activity, please click the complete evaluation link in the activity. Once the evaluation is complete and submitted, you'll be able to select the type of credit you require. You must claim your credit to receive your certificate or for pharmacists, submit to the CPE monitor. This concludes today's webcast. Thank you, enjoy the rest of the day. Bye.